0: discipleship and what it, what it truly means to be a disciple of Christ. And listen, we could spend way more than five weeks on this. I mean, we could spend months, years, and in fact, our entire lives ought to be spent seeking to better understand and seeking to more faithfully live into this call of, of discipleship that, that Jesus offers. So much of the teaching and when Jesus uh, reminds us that if anyone wants to follow Him, we must um, deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow Him. And, and He says, you know, in Matthew's Gospel, if anybody wants to to find his life, he must be willing to lose it. He must be willing to lay it down. So much of that is 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 said and spoken when there are crowds around Him. And so what we see in that is that Jesus isn't just... Interested in a crowd, right? He's not just interested in, in numbers. He is interested in people who are willing to, to hear the call and, and willing to lay down their lives as Jesus models for us and who are willing to follow him. And the reason that we do that is because we recognize and, and are willing to trust that as Jesus says in John 10:10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. We realize that the only place to truly find this full and abundant life is in Jesus. It's not Jesus plus something else will give me the life that I want and crave and desire. In fact, when we try to add anything else to Jesus is when we begin to find that we are disappointed and we are let down and we are frustrated because things just don't seem to be working out the way that we want them to in our lives. Uh, There's a saying, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so we have an, an, an opportunity over the season of Lent to, to consider, what is that something else that I might be trying to add to life with Jesus that is causing me frustration? And we're just going to look at some of the things um, that, that discipleship costs us. Last week, we just laid the groundwork. Discipleship is costly. Uh, this, this morning, we want to consider this idea that, that discipleship costs us, one of the things it costs us is our comfort. I'm going to go back uh, to a quote that, uh, that I read last week. This is from Brennan Manning in his book, The Signature of Jesus. He says, To be a Christian is to be like Christ. Somehow we must lose our life in order to find it. Christianity preaches not only a crucified God, but also crucified men and women. May I never boast except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's from Galatians 6.14. And he says this, There is no discipleship without the cross. I am not a follower of Jesus if I live with him only in Bethlehem and Nazareth and not in Gethsemane and on Calvary too. To be a Christian is to be like Christ. To be a Christian is to be like Christ. And and I would add to that this question. What version of Christ are you seeking to be like? What picture of Jesus are you seeking to, to model your, your life as? And maybe a better way of, of asking that is, what is the picture of Jesus that you are seeking to create in your life? Is it a Jesus who is comfortable? A Jesus who is predictable? A Jesus who is there when you need Him? but when you don't need Him and want to do your own thing, you're sure that He's going to stay in the place that you left Him? Or is it a Jesus who looks more like the Jesus that we see in Scripture? The Jesus who sought out the lost. The Jesus who sought out the weak and the wounded. The Jesus who who asks us to give everything to follow Him the Jesus who calls us out of that place where things are comfortable and predictable as he did to his early disciples. James and John, you're with your father, the fisherman, mending nets because you two are fishermen. Come and follow me. They leave the nets and go and follow Jesus. Are we willing to lay it all on the line to, to follow this, this rabbi, the one who is our Messiah and, and Savior? Or are we painting a different... Picture of Jesus. Are we taking, as David Platt says, the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus we are more comfortable with? A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that He receives all our affection. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts, because after all, He loves us just the way we are, right? Is that the, the Jesus that we are modeling our lives after, or the Jesus that is at the, the center of our lives, or are we willing to say that might not be truly who Jesus is, and, and thus The life I am living, there might be more to it. There might be more to discipleship than than I am allowing to give myself over to. And listen, the the beauty of all of it is there is grace. There is grace in which it is absolutely true that Jesus does meet you where you are in the journey. Jesus does meet you where you are. Jesus is willing to meet you where you are. As, as Max Licato uh, says in one of his books, Jesus, uh, God loves you right where you are, but he loves you so much he's not going to leave you there. He's not going to leave you the way that he found you. The question is, are we willing to allow him the liberty uh, to do that? Or are we willing to trust that Jesus actually is enough? Are we willing to, to lay it all on the line, to go all in, Following jesus to say yeah i 'm willing to be made a little bit uncomfortable to begin with, not too uncomfortable let 's just begin with a little discomfort. The place that you start is is the best place for you to begin where you are right now the, the place from which you are taking your next step in relationship with jesus that 's the right place for you it 's not about comparing your life, your walk, your journey of discipleship with someone else 's it 's about asking. Jesus, help me as, as I read your word, help me to, to see and to hear from you what, what discipleship looks like, and then help me to recognize my own life, in my own life, what are those things that are hindering me from living faithfully and from taking the next step? A- am I too comfortable? Am I seeking comfort over faithfulness? <clears throat> and, and Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, is faithful to deal with us. Uh, to deal with us in that. So what does it look like for us to to live into this call to be made uncomfortable? What does it look like for us to live into the invitation of the full life of, of, you know, found in Christ? And then what does it look like uh, for us to begin to see that there are people around us who are desperate desperate for that life because they are desperately seeking it and seeking to make it uh, on their own and, and to come alongside them and to say, hey, let me let me tell you about this Jesus who has revealed these things to me and, and who offers me more than I could ever imagine. Let's look. <clears throat> We're continuing in the, the journey narrative uh, in Luke's gospel. As Jesus, as, as we said, uh, saw last week in, in chapter 9, he's, his eyes are He's set resolute, resolutely looking toward Jerusalem. Like he's on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to what we know as the triumphal entry we celebrated as Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem and began the march to the cross. So he's on the journey now, and, and Luke captures this, this journey um, in a, an incredible way. So let's, we'll be in Luke chapter 10 uh, this morning looking at what ought to be a very familiar uh, parable to many of us. Luke uh, 10, beginning with verse 25, if you would, in honor of the reading of God's Word, please stand. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he, that's the the, the lawyer or the religious leader, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Uh, where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, or he had mercy on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses, expense you may have." Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Go and do likewise. Likewise. It's not uncommon for us to see that Jesus is tested by the religious leaders. Some commentaries simply call this man the lawyer, but not a lawyer in the sense, in the way that we think of a lawyer, but a lawyer who is an expert in the law, an expert in the law of Moses, uh, as, as God's people understood it. An expert in this, these are, this is what God gave to the people uh, after they were brought out of captivity in Egypt. This is how you live, this is how you worship, this is how you relate to one another, and this is who you do not relate to at all. This is how you live in a way that is distinct from the rest of the world. And, and we often think of the law as being inhibitive, and, and we often think that, that why, would I ever, uh, why would anyone ever want to become a Christian? That's just a bunch of rules uh, that I have to try to follow, and I have a hard enough time uh, like doing the things I need to do on a you know, day-in and day-out basis. Anyway, why would I add to that all of these rules that I am also meant to follow? And, and And praise God that that's you know Jesus came, yes, he, he says, "I came to fulfill the law he, he He did not come to abolish it and to do away with it. He came to show us what it looks like to live into the fullness of who God calls us to be and invites us to be as His people. but because Jesus entered the scene and and you know he 's called rabbi jesus didn 't begin his ministry until he was like thirty years old, right so he was born uh, in, Immaculate, like in this unbelievable way, you know, the virgin birth, he was brought into this world uh, and, and, <clears throat> Mary, his mother, and then uh, his father who was a carpenter, his, his earthly father, I guess maybe you would say it's his stepfather, uh, but his father who was a carpenter. So we have to assume uh, that because Jesus was Jewish by birth, because he was raised in a Jewish household, he, he did the thing that his father did. So G, we have to assume that Jesus was uh, a carpenter and, and that Jesus was, um, was being faithful to, to support the family uh, business and when it was time. As John was calling out uh, the voice in the wilderness, inviting people, calling them to repentance and baptism because the kingdom of God is near, Jesus comes to be baptized. He's 30 years old when this happens and Jesus begins his his public ministry. And then we we, we read that Jesus is described as one who, who teaches as one who had authority. He teaches in a way that no one else taught. He teaches and opens God's Word and God's law in ways that that people had never experienced before. Who is this one who teaches with such authority? Because they knew the the old, the great rabbis, they knew the great religious teachers, they knew of of Gamaliel and, and the fact that many rabbis were trained by him. And yet they can't take Jesus and trace him back to training by, by old Gamaliel. And, and so they're like, all right, who, this guy's a fraud. He may, he may teach as someone who has authority, but who, who, was his, who gave him his authority to teach? And so you have religious leaders, you have uh, experts in the law, lawyers like this man who, who are constantly coming to test Jesus because they want to discredit him. And so this man comes and, and asks him. And what's interesting is that every response that this lawyer gives, uh, Jesus says, Yeah, you you have answered, you have answered correctly. And it would seem to us like like a genuine and an honest question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, what a beautiful question. Like if someone tomorrow at your workplace or, or at school or someone that you run into comes up to you and just says, hey, I, listen, this thing has really been weighing on me. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I, I pray that you would be able to share with them the, the good news of Jesus and, and the gospel and to, and to say, hey, here's here, here is how you say yes to this, this, like, that's the Holy Spirit that's burdening you. Here's how you say yes to that. Here's what that means for your life. I hope that you would be able to answer this. I mean, it, what, what, a, what a beautiful question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Except underneath this question is this man simply trying to trap Jesus. He's not concerned with inheriting eternal life in, in the way that it would seem He's asking. Because if he is an expert on the law, he believes that he's already there. He wants to know if Jesus knows the answer to that question. And I love that Jesus responds to a question with a what? A question. What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? That's a bit of a piercing question. How do you read the law? How do you read God's Word? What is, what is the vantage point or what is the lens through which you read this book? Is it through some worldview that you have that you hope you can find words in here that will support the worldview that you have? Because we see that happening, it, is, it has become a part of our landscape or or are we willing to to see this as you know what holy spirit i pray that you would help me to see these words in the way that you intended them as as being for encouragement for instruction in life for conviction for inspiration for truth How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are take, taken from Deuteronomy 6, five and Le- Leviticus 19.18. Uh, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, hear the Lord your God, is one from, from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. We see that uh, Jesus respond to a similar question in Matthew's Gospel. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus responds with those words. Only this time, Jesus is turning to, to the lawyer, to the, the, the expert in God's law and saying, how do you, what, do you, what is your understanding of um, how you would inherit uh, eternal life? And he says, love God with everything that you are. What a great answer. And then as a result of that, love your neighbor with yourself. We could begin there and, and, and just merely, that's, that's a great example of where we would lay our lives before the mirror of Scripture. We would allow Scripture to, to be held up against our lives and ask the question, am I loving God with all that I am, with my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, Eugene Peterson says in the message, with all of your passion? Am I loving God with all of those things? With every bit of who I am. And I, I feel like most of us would say, mm, kind of. There are some areas in my life where I feel like I am not fully loving God the way that, that I am being instructed to. And so let's deal with those. God, let's deal with those things. What's keeping me from loving you? Where am I holding back? Where am I not trusting you? Where am I, where am I ashamed to, to allow you in? And then, how am I loving the people around me? So Jesus tells this this lawyer, this expert in the law, he says, hey, you've answered correctly. Good job. How, how man, I would, it was rare that I heard those words as a student uh, in school. You've answered correctly. Um, it always felt good when it came, but Gosh, to come from Jesus, I mean, just imagine what that must have felt like. I mean, it's like when when Peter's asked the question, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's right, Peter. And Peter feels so good about himself that then he goes on to tell Jesus, like, that he's not going to suffer and die, to which Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Ah, man, Peter, you're right there. (laughs) Imagine what it's like to hear these words from Jesus. You've answered correctly. Jesus says, do this and you will live. Having the right answers does not mean that one knows God. Just because you have the right answers does not mean that you are intimately connected in fellowship with God. You can know this book, inside and out. But do you know the one who inspired it? You can know everything that is written in the way that Scripture says we should live, but do you know the one who is the fulfillment of it? Just because you have the answers doesn't mean you know the one who is the answer, Jesus So this man seeking to justify himself, seeking to, to prove that he was not willing to be silenced by a simple "You have answered correctly," goes on to further test Jesus by asking, "And who is "Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor?" He's doing this not so much to determine to whom he must show love, but so as to be able to calculate who he doesn't have to show love to, right? And I wonder how many of us would ask that question with that undertone, who, who is my neighbor? Not because we're so concerned with who is it that you are going to call me to love, but because we are more concerned with who is it that I don't have to love? Who is it that I am safe from reaching out in love toward? Who is it that I'm going to be shielded from? Who is it that, that who it might get uncomfortable to love? Who are the people that is comfortable and easy? Like, where's the low-hanging fruit? Who are those people that I can love? You see, one of the things that shaped the, this culture it was it was uh, what was known as an honor shame uh, culture and and whereas we tend to think of, of of guilt on an individual level, like I feel bad about something that I did, uh, you were honored in that culture if if you lived into what was the cultural norm so for this man as as a an expert in the law and, and what he is asking here is. I want to hear Jesus, you say, because this is how I understand the law, that if I just go on and continue to love my fellow man, meaning my fellow Jew... Then, then that's right. That's who God says we are as his people. We are distinct from everyone who is not Jewish. We are distinct from those filthy Gentiles. And, and I want to hear you affirm my worldview that the only people I am meant to reach out and love to are the people that are like me and believe the same things that I believe. He would have been honored in that culture because he is essentially living into and upholding what is the cultural norm. And it would have been a shameful thing for him to step outside of that norm in love for someone that is not like him. Which is why Jesus was ridiculed by the religious leaders when he chose to break bread and and sit at a table and share a meal with prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners. Because the table fellowship, the meal for the people of God, was seen as a sacred thing. And so by Jesus breaking bread and sharing a meal with people that were clearly outside of God's will, with people that were clearly sinners, with people that clearly did harm to self and harm to those around them, Jesus was committing a, a cardinal sin, if you will. That, that was shameful because he was stepping outside of what was culturally normative at the time. And yet those are the people that we see Jesus going to. Zacchaeus, uh, he come down out of that tree because I'm gonna... Um, come to your house today, and we're going to throw a party, and guess who we're going to invite? All the people that no one else is going to invite into their home, and I'm going to share a meal with you. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds by telling the story that we know as as the Good Samaritan. It it wouldn't have been entitled this way, and this is just how um, as Scripture was beginning to be collected, these, these headings were given to, to give us some distinction from this part of the text, this part of the text from another part of the text. We see it as the Good Samaritan, but this, this heading wouldn't have been there. And so um, Jesus responds by, by telling, sharing this parable or telling this this story. The road... From Jerusalem to Jericho, about 17 miles, you're descending in elevation as you go uh, from Jerusalem down to Jericho. This would have been familiar to anyone uh, who lived in this area. He was attacked by robbers, also uh, not uncommon uh, for this to happen. It was people just, you didn't travel this road alone, you didn't travel this road at night, you didn't even really want to travel this lo- road alone in the heat of the day because uh, people hit, it was very rocky, there were, there were cliffs, and, and people would hide and, and waiting uh, for someone like this man who was traveling alone, and they jumped him, uh, they beat him, they left him uh, half for dead, and, and so oftentimes you would travel with uh, someone else or in the company of another or at certain uh, times a day to try to avoid this. So this would have been a familiar occurrence. This wasn't, Jesus wasn't saying something that was out of the ordinary. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him for dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. We don't know if the priest was alone. Uh, We would assume that he would have people with him. We would also assume, as we read the beginning of those words, that the priest would be one who would help him. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. He he didn't just ignore the fact that the man was laying there in the ditch. He avoided him altogether. Sometimes we are simply ignorant to the suffering of those around us. Because we are so caught up in our own lives. And I would say because we live such distracted lives. Because we allow, I'm just going to use our phones as an example, we allow the constant barrage of, of, of information, it's not even good information, but just the, the constant distraction of, of walking around staring at a screen and what is happening in, at the, in the rest of the world or in someone else's life that we, we, we miss the suffering that's happening in, in the life of someone close to us or someone around us. And, and I think that that is often true of us as a, as a culture. But sometimes we are, we are not too different from the priest in that we avoid the suffering of someone else. He, he, he crossed to the other side of the road, passed by on the other side, So to a Levite, both of these would have been religious leaders. So to a Levite, he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. Now it's easy to, it's easy for us to vilify uh, these two guys, and and in which case, you know, if we're we're not careful and, and we make them like public enemy number one, then we could say, well, I would, I would never do that. I would stop and help someone. Until we look at maybe the reasons why these religious leaders would have done that. It was, uh, one, they might have been afraid for their own lives. That, that seems wise, right? To, uh, th- like, this could have been a trap. This could have been, hey, let's, let's, let's throw out some bait for some poor, compassionate soul, if we leave this man uh, here for dead, then someone will stop and help him. And while they're giving attention to this man, then we jump him and we've got another victim, right? Uh, so that seems wise. Also, because they were religious leaders, if, if, um, they, they weren't allowed to touch like a dead body. Right? That would have made them ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, and they would have been unable to perform um, what they needed to as religious leaders. And so you're thinking, well, they're, I mean, they're following the law. Like, that's the right thing to do in that situation. So wh- where do we allow our understanding of the right thing to get in the way of doing the thing that Jesus calls us to do? You know, last week, we we, we looked at um, the man who says to Jesus, hey, i I, I will go wherever you want me to go, but first let me go and bury my father. And and that would have been like the the customary, the right culturally, faithfully, like the right thing for him to do. And and Jesus says, Let the bed dead bury their dead. Like don't allow your understanding of the law to get in the way of being faithful to follow me as just like don't you don't get to dictate the terms. Which I think we do so often. How are we, based on the way that we are shaping and creating and crafting our lives, or how are we, based on what we believe is true about God's word, how are we allowing the law or the law that we've created for ourselves to inhibit us from doing the thing that God asks us to do and reaching out in love to someone else? Because we are unwilling to be made Uncomfortable. Because what is safe and calculated is comfortable because we know how that works. But what happens if I step out here and reach out in love to someone else? What happens if I don't know how to help them? What happens if I don't have what they need? What happens if I don't have the right answers? What happens if I don't have answers to the questions uh, that, that they are asking? Parker Palmer Says this. Well, first, I want, to, I want to invite you to consider that the, the most extraordinary privilege that we can have is to be invited into someone else's pain. It's one of the greatest privileges that you can be given is to be trusted enough to to walk walk with someone else, and sometimes it's it's just that right. Parker Palmer says, to suffer with another person does not mean to drown oneself in the other's suffering. That would be as foolish as jumping into a pool to save a sinking swimmer only to drown uh, oneself. More to the point, I doubt that it is even possible to enter fully into another person's pain, for suffering is a profoundly solitary experience. To suffer with another person means to be there in whatever way possible, to share the circumstances of the other's life as much as one can, not to add to the world's pool of suffering, but to gain intimate understanding of what the other requires. What we usually learn once we are there is that there is no fix for the person who suffers, only the slow, painful process of walking through the suffering to whatever lies on the other side. Once there, we learn that being there is the best we can do. Being there not as a cure but as a companion to the person who suffers on his or her slow journey. There is no arm's length solution for suffering, and people who suffer such only add to the pain, or people who offer such only add to the pain. But there is comfort and even healing in the presence of people who know how to live with others, how to be fully there. It wasn't the religious leaders who stepped in to help this man who was suffering. It was the person least expected. It was a Samaritan, and and the history between Jews and Samaritans goes back some six hundred years uh, from from this point. And the simply put, Samaritans were were seen as it's like to say that they were seen as less than would be kind. In in some cases, they're described as being less insignificant than the dirt under your your sandal or under your shoe. That's, that's how Jews felt about Samaritans. What this man would have probably expected to hear because he saw religious leaders being faithful to the religious customs, you don't go and touch a dead body and and you also want to try to protect your own life, what he probably would have expected is to hear another Jewish man was coming along, saw his friend and went to help him or saw his brother and went to help him. Instead, what he hears is the person that you would least expect is the person that came alongside him, that bandaged his wounds, that washed him clean, that threw him on his own donkey, his own beast of burden, and took him to an inn and made sure that he had everything that he needed for his healing and for his recovery. He showed him mercy. He showed him compassion. He offered grace. He took what what he had, his time, his resources, he took what he had and offered it to this man who could offer him nothing in return. He didn't say, hey, send him the bill when he gets better. He told the innkeeper instead, hey, I'll check back through and if there's anything else I owe you, if any other expense has been incurred in in the helping of this man, helping him get back on his feet, then I'll take care of that too. Mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, not because this man could return anything, not because he hoped that this man would owe him a favor, but because he had mercy and compassion on him. He saw someone hurting and stepped into that place of hurt with him. And as Parker Palmer says, sometimes the only thing that we can do is simply to walk alongside someone or sit with them in that pain. We don't always have the answer. We don't always have the resources that are needed, but what we do have is the ability to tell someone, hey, I see you, I hear you, I'm paying attention, you are not alone in this. Friends, I believe that the church has lost sight of the fact that that is who we are called to be in this world. If you go back and look at the picture of the early church, these people were so enraptured by their understanding of the grace of God and what had been given them in Jesus that they held nothing of their own as being more valuable than what they had been given in the mercy and grace of Christ on the cross. And so that they were able to take everything that they own and said, it's not really mine, it belongs to God. And if God can use it or if it can be used to help someone else, hey, I've got some land, I've got some possessions, let's sell them. If anyone has need, then let's give them to them. Let's make sure that people don't have need, that they don't have want, that they are cared for. Such a simple thing to do. And what we see happen as a result of that as described at the end of Acts chapter two is that no one among them had need. They continued to meet together in the temple court that would have been the place where Jewish people gathered. These Christians, these Christ followers who proclaimed Jesus as Messiah continued to meet in the temple courts, and guess what? Found favor with all the people. Not because all of the people were also Christians, but because they saw the way that these Christians were willing to make themselves a little bit uncomfortable so that they could care for those around them who had need. What if the church begins to live this way again? That in our coming and going, as people hear that you are a follower of Christ, they're like, man, I'm so glad you're here because things just seem to go a little bit better when you're present. I just feel a safety, I feel a comfort because of your presence here. Not because you're telling me all of the things I'm doing with my life are wrong, but because you're willing to know me, you're willing to hear my story, and I feel loved by you right where I am. And if I have pain and turmoil, guess who I'm going to trust to reach out to? You, the Christ follower because I'm watching the way that you're walking through difficulty and I'm watching the way that you're walking through pain. Friends, the, the call and the invitation of life with Christ is not the, these lives that we live on, on earth and they're, they're, we're, we're just sojourners, we're just passing through. It's a blink, it's a moment in, in the scope of eternity. Our call is to not to make our lives as comfortable as possible. But it's to, to say, you know what, I, I know the one who is the great comforter. His name is Jesus, and I'm, I'm willing, because I trust him with my life, because he was willing to give his life for me. I am willing I'm willing to be made uncomfortable. I'm willing to hold what I have, my time, my talent, my treasure. I'm willing to hold it with an open hand. Because I believe when I do that, he, he can do more with who I am and what I have. He, he can lead me into the lives of people who are hurting. He, he can even invite me to be broken and poured out on behalf of someone else. Jim Branch says this. It seems that a significant amount of doing ministry involves figuring out how to give it and who to give it to. You see, God gave you something wonderfully unique and specific, something that only you can give. You give them something to eat, Jesus is saying, because I gave you something only you can give. First give it to me, then I will give it back to you in abundance. Only then will you be able to give it to them, whoever your them may be. And in giving of it to them, you will find that there is enough to feed you as well. Because it seems in Jesus' economy, we we can't be multiplied enough to be given away. We can only be broken enough to be given. It is in the breaking that the abundance comes. The funny thing is that the times when we are the most broken are usually the times when it feels like we have the least to give, but the opposite is actually true. It is when we are the most broken that we are most able to give something of substance and value to those in our lives and world. Because somehow, in the brokenness, it has stopped being about us and our ability to multiply ourselves and has begun to be about God and his ability to multiply our little loaves and little fish with his strong and tender hands. The cost of discipleship is one that asks of us our lives. And sometimes in that, there is going to be breaking but it is in the breaking that we are multiplied. It is in being willing to walk through our own difficulty that we are able to step into and have something to offer to those who are walking through pain and difficulty. And it's going to be uncomfortable. And yet there is no one who experienced more discomfort than Jesus experienced in that moment on the cross when he thought he had been forsaken by the Father. Who even in that moment cried out, God forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. Allowed himself to be broken and poured out on our behalf. So that in our own weakness and brokenness, we might know that that does not have the final say. That it is the one who conquered death that has the final say. Amen.